This is an ABC podcast. Should a passenger who was seriously injured in a car crash involving a stolen vehicle be denied accident compensation? That's coming up. For the first time in Australia, a tribunal has ruled that a death linked to COVID-19 can be classified as a work-related injury, awarding workers' compensation and medical expenses to the family of the deceased. In July 2020, Sydney man Georges Sara travelled to the United States for work. There he caught COVID-19 and after a lengthy hospital stay, he passed away. Curtin University professor Rob Guthrie is an expert in workers' compensation and workplace law. Rob Guthrie, who was Georges Sara? Georges Sara is described as an Australian pioneer manufacturing in dental technology. He established a business in the 1990s, which was a company, Sara Proprietary Limited, and that was involved in dental technology, and it later expanded into two other companies. They were known as uh, Stoneglass Australia and Stoneglass USA. He formed incredibly strong connections with dental practitioners in the US and also a number of universities. He travelled to the US regularly from about 2017 onwards and he engaged with the universities and the academics there and he sold to them and helped with the training of of dentists and he was involved in the implementation of software and other hardware products whilst he was in the US. And as part of that ongoing business, he travelled in July 2020 to New York for work and I think he arrived there on July the 15th. He stays in a hotel and he arranges with a number of academics to have various meetings with them and he meets with quite a number of academics and practitioners for the purposes of the business and this happens over the course of a couple of weeks During the time that he is meeting with them, it becomes apparent that he develops the symptoms of COVID. And in fact, the people that he meets with, and there are two or three dental practitioners who in fact also develop COVID symptoms and contract uh, COVID. So during this period, he develops the COVID symptoms and eventually succumbs to COVID and eventually is uh, admitted to hospital where he stays, unfortunately, from July until November when he dies. This dispute was between the family of the deceased and the New South Wales workplace insurance agency, iCare. What did the New South Wales Personal Injury Commission find? What compensation was the family of the deceased entitled to? The determination was that Mr Sarah, had he lived, would have been entitled to weekly payments and the payment of medical expenses, which would have been calculated under New South Wales legislation. And in addition to that, his widow would be entitled to a lump sum benefit. So I think the family were entitled to about $800,000 in death payout. It's still unclear, but there's something like $11 million in, in US medical expenses. And I guess that's still to be calculated down the track about what percentage they can recover. Yes, that's right. And that's, I guess, one of the big issues. But the $11 million is is actually not discussed in detail, except to say at the end of the reasons, the principal member says this is a matter for future determination. It has to be made, the orders will have to be made subject to the limits of the New South Wales legislation. So it's unlikely that there'll ever be a payment in that order of $11 million. But it does give you some idea of the incredible expense which could be incurred if you're unfortunate enough to be hospitalised in the US. 
It certainly does. Let's just put that uh, medical expenses issue to one side. So there were really two main issues in this dispute. There was a dispute about what particular entity was Georges Sara employed by and whether that was the entity that iCare was the insurer for. And, and it was established that he was employed by the corporate entity that iCare was the insurer for. But there was another issue. Did he contract COVID-19 in the course of his employment? The tribunal had very little difficulty in finding that he did. They were relying on a couple of high court cases which really give broad coverage for workers who have been induced or encouraged by their employer to travel. And in this case, clearly, he was travelling in the course of his work. Yes, he certainly had some social events, he had some meetings, but essentially the tribunal was satisfied that what he was doing was in the course of his employment. So I think that gives very broad protection for workers like him who are travelling, who contract COVID, this decision probably makes it easier for them to claim if they do contract the condition. So he was doing things like attending work dinners with the kind of people he'd known for a long time, so kind of half social, half business events. There's that social element to them, but that was also covered. So it's accepted that there will be an element of, if you like, social intercourse in the course of your employment. People who are doing things which are incidental to their employment will be covered. So we know that there are social functions which people attend. They're not actually working, but that's going to be within the scope of their employment. And that's essentially what Mr Sarah was doing. It was necessary for him to meet formally, but also socially interact with these people. And uh, he did that. And that was all part of his job. So really, there was not a lot of difficulty in finding that he was in the course of employment when he contracted the condition. This is the first COVID-19 workers' compensation case to hit a tribunal. How significant is this decision? I think it could be significant for those people who are falling outside the deeming provisions. So those people who fall within the deeming provisions, the people who are healthcare workers and the like, hopefully they don't have to go through this process of litigation. And that's because there's special legislation for them. And that was brought in with the intent that We don't want to put people through the process of having to litigate in a complex way to deal with this condition, which obviously can be deadly. So the state and territory governments have actually put that in place and hopefully that will take care of most of the claims. But there'll be a few people on the fringes who don't fall within those sort of frontline workers. And I think this decision gives them some comfort because the finding that it was an injury in the course of the employment will probably assist those workers. And who's deemed to be a frontline worker? It'll vary between states, but essentially it's the the frontline healthcare workers and paramedics, those people you expect who are coming into contact with COVID in the course of their normal work. In New South Wales, it also includes the retail industry, which is interesting. It was conceded that Mr Sarah fell within that bracket of retail workers, presumably because he was engaged in, in selling a product. So it's a broad classification, but there might be a lot of other professional people who fall outside that category and and they're the people who might have to litigate their claims. I imagine that it won't always be straightforward to establish if a person contracted COVID-19 at work. I mean, if the disease is, for instance, widespread like it is currently in New South Wales, it'll be a tricky proposition, won't it, in many cases? It, It could be, for example, for government workers or any office worker not involved in retail, for example, not involved in healthcare sector, who come into their office and become infected, maybe because someone else is infected in the office, the the causation issue will be very live. How does this decision feed into the conversations we're having about what employers 
are required to do to create a COVID-safe working environment, and including in that conversation about whether or not employers can or should require their employees to get vaccinated, because this decision potentially has implications. Yeah, it does, because it cheats home that there is potential liability for workers' compensation. It makes that clear. That, in a sense, is already on the books. And you've got operating alongside that occupational health and safety laws, uh, workplace laws, which require that an employer make the workplace safe. So if you've got the potential for contraction of disease arising out of the workplace, then there is clearly a duty upon the employer to make that safe. And then you feed that into this issue of vaccination. The general consensus is that employers can not so much compel vaccination, but they can put limits on people coming into the workplace if they are not vaccinated. Because if people are not vaccinated and there's high levels of contraction outside of the workplace, the potential for them to bring it into the workplace is increased and therefore the workplace is unsafe. So yes, it's, it's all part of that rather difficult and complex conversation, but it, it adds to the weight that the employer has this duty to make the workplace safe. And therefore maybe lend support to the argument that they may be legally required to mandate vaccines in some circumstances. Well, yes. And I think, for example, if you were an employer who was allowing travel, and given that you know international travel is pretty much unavailable at the moment, but interstate travel is to some extent available, you can understand, given this decision, that an employer might say, you can travel on condition that you're vaccinated. And it seems to me that's a reasonable condition to put on a worker. In fact, it makes sense for the worker to be vaccinated given the risks that might happen through travel, etc. So if these conditions are reasonably put by the employer, then they will be available and put in place. And I think the Sarah case actually adds weight to that. Do we know how many other COVID-19 workers' compensation cases there are in the pipeline? I think IKSA in New South Wales alone, there are about 700. There are statistics which are available from Safe Work Australia showing some of that data. And I think you're right that it's around about 700 in New South Wales. I think the figure is a little bit lower in Victoria. There's probably, it seems to me, a reasonable guess between 1,000 and 2,000 claims pending in Australia. Professor Rob Guthrie, Curtin University expert in workers' compensation and workplace law, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now to the story of 25-year-old Trey Flick, who was injured in a terrible motor vehicle accident in 2019 and resides in a disability care home in Perth. His grandfather, Larry Flick, a Gamilaroi man who lives in Mudgee, New South Wales, says the event has changed Trey's life forever. He can't do anything now. All he does is lie in the bed all day. So he can't walk? No, he he cannot walk. He cannot talk. He has a tracheotomy, I believe, a permanent tracheotomy. Yes, he's he's got a tracheotomy in. He cannot speak. That's how he is. He's just in the bed all day now. And so he has physical disabilities. Does he have intellectual disabilities as well or brain damage? He seems to us, he knows every one of us. He FaceTimes us all the time. And when someone sees him, they wave to him and, 
asked him how he's going and that. We asked who he is and got a little uh, system with him. He blinks twice for yes and all that sort of stuff. I believe a lot of his communication is via text. So one of his hands is is fully functional and he, he's able to text a lot with people. Yes, he, he, he texts. He, that's how he does if he, like, he'll FaceTime. He, he can he FaceTime us. We'll talk to him about stuff and all that there, but he doesn't respond back to us because he can't talk. And then he'll uh, put a little question in there. And where does Trey live? He lives in a, a disability care home? She's in a um, nursing home over in Western Australia. Is he comfortable there? Is he happy there? No, he's not really happy there. He's, he always, like when he's on the phone to us and that, he's asked me quite a few times, can he come home? Right now, coming home to Mudgee is not an option. Kenneth Rakunga from Shine Lawyers represents the Flick family in a claim for accident compensation from the Insurance Commission of WA, a statutory body owned by the state government which provides injury insurance to motorists. He says Trey's accident happened during a stay in Perth some two years ago. Trey Flick was at a house party on the night of the 15th, early morning of the 16th of October. His friend... Stephen John Lindrea attended their party and picked up Trey in what we know now was a stolen vehicle. And Trey entered that vehicle and it was heading south of Perth on the Kunana Freeway towards Mandra. What we have now on record is that he was driving erratically. And whilst driving erratically, he was weaving in between the left and the right lane at or above 110 kilometers an hour. And he loses control at a left bend, causing the vehicle to roll over several times and ended up resting in the median strip of the Quinana Freeway, causing catastrophic injuries to Trey. How old were both of these young men at the time? Trey was 22 and um, Stephen was around that same age. The driver, Stephen Lindrea, was unharmed in the accident, but your client, Trey Flick, sustained catastrophic injuries. What injuries did he sustain? Trey will never walk again because of the nature of the fractures in his spine such that he will have no function of his lower limbs. And depending on his recovery process, he's quite unlikely to have a function of his bowel and his bladder. Because of this traumatic brain injury, he is learning how to communicate. And the only way he's going to learn how to communicate is through the use of technology. So an iPad is what he's using at the moment. And um, he needs 24-hour, seven-day-a-week supervision, care and assistance. His situation is dynamic. He is improving all the time, I understand. But he does have these catastrophic injuries. His medical treatment and his care are paid for by the WA Insurance Commission, but he has not received what's known as motor vehicle accident injury compensation. What's the difference in terms of what you get from medical treatment and ongoing care on the one hand, and then if you are eligible for it, what do you get from the motor vehicle accident compensation if you can establish that you're entitled to it? It's important to differentiate between these two schemes. The catastrophic injuries support scheme simply provides care and assistance, necessary treatment for a period of time. What you get from when liability is accepted for further damages other than just the care and assistance in the catastrophic scheme is other heads of damages like economic loss, 
loss of superannuation past in the future, further care and assistance beyond that, home modifications, etc. You've got a lot more heads of damages on the scheme that deals with accepted liability versus the catastrophic injury scheme, which just deals with care and assistance. You're going to be much better off in terms of your level of comfort, independence, lifestyle, and they can also factor into your prognosis in terms of your ongoing recovery from catastrophic injuries. That's correct. So, so to speak, in a layman's person, your claim is going to be significantly larger when liability is accepted for your injuries compared to what you get, which is just purely care and assistance, no such compensation within the catastrophic scheme. The Flick family supports the scheme. Trey and his father Nathan even feature in a video produced by the WA Insurance Commission. Sue's Insurance Commission, she's pretty good. We can call her up anytime we need to, to sort things out. And she's been uh, keeping us updated with everything what Trey needs to be done. Told us all about his wheelchair, all his stuff that he needs. She'll um, get it done for us. She's pretty good. Kenneth Rakunga, your client Trey Flick has his ongoing medical and care costs paid by the WA Insurance Commission under its uh, catastrophic injury scheme. Why did they refuse his request for motor vehicle accident compensation under their third com, under their compulsory third party scheme? Why was that? The reason why Trey has not had approved compensation yet is because he has been deemed to have engaged in a joint criminal enterprise with the driver. And that's because he jumped into a car which was stolen. Well, that's the argument that the insurance commission has advanced. And the nature of this particular accident is such that there is two sides to this story. One is the driver that walked away from that crash unharmed and the other one who sustained catastrophic injuries. And the evidence that we've received to date is that he was not aware that that vehicle was stolen. But have you asked him? This is the next step. Because he's only just started to communicate and is learning to communicate with this technology, the plan is to be able to get him to tell us his version of the story. And the truth is, Damien, if we're not able to get that evidence that we would be able to tell a judge and convince a judge that, in fact, he had no knowledge of a crime having been committed and then that vehicle was stolen, then Trey would be entitled to compensation far beyond what the current scheme is in would provide. And what has Stephen Lindrea's evidence been on this point? Does he say that um, your client knew that he was getting into a stolen car? Well, actually, it goes a bit further than that. He says, and this is in the transcripts, um, he says that notwithstanding the fact that he has been found guilty, that he and Trey stole the vehicle together. His story has changed more than once, where he then said, well, actually, he wasn't involved in the stealing of that vehicle at all. To the extent that the magistrate at sentencing did say that he does not come across as honest and compelling. And so he would genuinely be found to have changed his story on numerous occasions. And people that were present at that time, unfortunately, they are minors, have said more than once that Trey was not involved in the stealing of that vehicle. Lindrea was subsequent to the accident charged and found guilty of a, of a number of offences and, and spent time in jail for four offences, including a burglary, possession of cannabis, but also dangerous driving occasioning grievous bodily harm. The grievous bodily harm was that experienced by your 
client. So in a sense, Lindre has been found guilty of harming your client. The issue that we have is that the insurance commission has then fallen back on his evidence by then essentially saying, well, it appears that from what we've gathered, this is the police saying that Trey was aware that the vehicle was a stolen vehicle and he got into it nonetheless. And so the argument in tort that suggests that you would have been knowledgeable of a crime having been committed, though in this case a stolen vehicle, then you'd be in a joint criminal enterprise and therefore wouldn't be entitled to compensation. John Lindrea has, as I understand it, a long criminal record. What about your client? No. So this, again, is evidence that's been put to us by the family that some of the acts or commissions of crime that he committed were done when he was a minor, if anything at all, very minor offences. And at this stage, he has not been involved with anything, to our knowledge, that would say that he's got a criminal past, so to speak. Why do you say that it would be a good outcome to extend accident compensation to your client? Because a lot of people listening to this would be saying, well, look, he, he jumped into a stolen car. A terrible accident takes place. He probably knew that he was jumping into a stolen car with his friend. It is understandable that, you know, your listeners today and the general public would say, well, he jumped into a stolen vehicle and perhaps if it's found that he did engage in a, in a joint criminal enterprise, that then he wouldn't be entitled to compensation. That, unfortunately, in the events where the opposite is true, that he didn't know that he was stepping into a stolen vehicle and he wasn't involved in the commission of a crime, you've got a 22-year-old man who had a bright future ahead of him, would have contributed to the Australian economy, would have been an upstanding citizen in the society that is no longer able to do any of that, but is actually going to be dependent on everybody around him, including the government. And for a very long period of time, he's going to be dependent on the Insurance Commission of Western Australia for care and assistance in situations where somebody else was, in fact, negligent. And so... If it is the case that he didn't know that he was entering a stolen vehicle and he wasn't involved in the commission of a crime, he should be and he will be entitled to compensation, including economic loss into the future, so that he can have some sense of a normalcy into the future because of somebody else's fault. Well, I'm just trying to um, trying to get something for Trey where even though they said that the government's going to pay for his caring and all that sort of stuff. Of course, Trey's only a young boy, and with technology and that and the way things are, he may be able to get out of the nursing home one day, and I would like him to have his own house and all that set up where he can walk in and have all the stuff in his house, you know, that suits suits his needs and all that sort of stuff so he can at least have a little bit of comfort and enjoyment for whatever the rest of his life may be. It could be a long time or it could be a short time too, you know? Just on public policy, we can't turn our minds away from those people simply because we think maybe, not that we've got any proper valid evidence, we just think maybe there was a commission of a crime. If there was, the law is quite black and white about that. But if there wasn't, then we should be looking into it, looking at it closer and address every single channel that we possibly can. And that's what we're supposed to do as officers of the court. He wasn't charged with a joint criminal enterprise. He never faced any charges. No, no, he didn't. One of the reasons may obviously be because he was as catastrophically injured as he was. Nonetheless, he wasn't charged with any crime. The decision about whether he 
engaged in joint criminal enterprise was made by a decision maker, an employee of the WA Insurance Commission, but without a court saying, yes, that we can establish this beyond reasonable doubt. Well, yes, if you like, you, you can put it that way. The decision process was such that it was put to them, the, the insurance commission would carry out this due diligence, they'd send out investigators, sometimes independent, they'll rely upon the police records, they'll rely upon statements, and a decision will be arrived at by somebody within the insurance commission of Western Australia. Um, and if you follow that history properly, you will see that they've found, what, you know, whether they've got an investigator who's speaking only specifically to Mr. Lindrea, and then the police are carrying out their own investigations and then utilizing what Mr. Lindrea is talking about, and then they'll arrive at that decision. And the decision that was arrived at in this case was, we think that he was involved in this joint criminal enterprise with Mr. Lindrea, and on that basis alone, he wouldn't be entitled to compensation and he'd only be managed through the catastrophic scheme. I don't think it's based on, on much because I don't know if, we don't know whether Trey knew the car was stolen. We didn't know if Trey stole the car or whatever, so we don't know that. What does Trey say? Does Trey say that he knew that he was getting into a stolen car? No, well, I do. I have not. I've never got around to asking him that um, or whatever, you know. And I don't think anyone has asked him that. In response to questions from the ABC, the WA Insurance Commission says it can't comment on particular decisions. The Commission explains in a statement how compensation decisions are made. To be able to claim against the compulsory third party or CTP scheme, one must prove that another party was at fault for the crash and resultant injuries. The Insurance Commission considers the following when making a liability decision. Crash report forms, police reports and files, photographs and videos, vehicle damage reports, statements from parties involved in the accident, including witnesses and vehicle owners, investigation reports and medical reports to determine the nature and extent of injuries. Kenneth Rukunga, is your client's situation unique? I'm wondering if you are, for instance, a drug driver or a drunk driver and you you know, commit the crime of drug driving or drunk driving and have a, an accident and catastrophically injure yourself. Presumably you're in the same boat as, as your client. You don't, yeah, you That's don't right. get the accident compensation. You don't because obviously, you know, you're at fault. The driver's at fault in a single accident crash and you're at fault. And so you'd just be entitled to that care and assistance. And what happens if you knowingly get into a car where you know that the driver is drug driving or drunk driving which is a crime, of course, a serious one, and that you sustain catastrophic injuries as a result of that person's drug or drunk driving, are you entitled to motor vehicle accident compensation or just the care and treatment? Just the care and the treatment in some of those cases. There is a very interesting case in New South Wales where they entered into a vehicle with a drunken driver and they knew only knew that the driver was drunk and they engaged in further drug intake within the vehicle and they crashed into an electric pole and some were catastrophically injured and none of them were entitled to compensation because it was deemed that they were engaging in a, a joint criminal enterprise. Again, it's pretty fuzzy because what happens if you're so drunk as a passenger, you're so drunk or drug affected that you don't know or care that the driver is drunk or drug affected. It creates very interesting arguments. And some of these some of these matters had to, have had to be determined by a court of law to the point that you can then completely put your fingers onto the negligence 
errant driver, or in some cases, there will be attributions of contributory negligence on some of the passengers for knowingly entering into a vehicle with a drunk driver or a, a drug-affected driver. And those matters have either resolved earlier before they've been in court for us to review what the decisions were, or in some cases, ultimately, the judges simply said that you were in jo- involved in that joint criminal enterprise. Kenneth Rukunga from Shine Lawyers speaking there. And before him, you heard Larry Flick, grandfather of Trey Flick. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer this week, Ari Gross. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.